You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. David Hackett Souter probably will be remembered as one of several appointments to the Supreme Court that failed to delight the president that appointed them. When Theodore Roosevelt appointed Oliver Wendell Holmes, he thought he was appointing a progressive who would support the administration's policy of breaking up large trusts. Ideologically, he did. But Oliver Wendell Holmes, when he took his seat, was very pragmatic and approached each case on its own set of facts. Sometimes he'd go one way, sometimes he'd go the other. When the court ruled in 1904 that the Railroad Trust of Northern Securities Company needed to be broken up, something that the Roosevelt administration had pursued, Oliver Wendell Holmes dissented. President was angry, but there was little that Teddy Roosevelt could do. Oliver Wendell Holmes was on the court or would be on the court until 1932, a 13 years after Theodore Roosevelt's death. A president serves only for four years and then for another four if re-elected by the people. But a Supreme Court justice serves for life or for the time they choose. There is no obligation, truly, between a Supreme Court justice and the president that appointed them. And any kind of obligation even thought of, or even suspected, would be scandalous. Abe Fortas, who was very close to Lyndon Johnson, suffered in reputation from allegations that he was Lyndon Johnson's man on the Supreme Court. When David Souter was appointed in 1990 to replace a very liberal-leaning Justice William Brennan, the president, George H.W. Bush, knowing that he had a Democratic Congress, a Democratic Senate, Democrats in charge of the Judiciary Committee, decided to pick Souter, partially because he was advocated by New Hampshire Senator Warren Rudman and Bush's own Chief of Staff John Sununu, but also because he had spent his legal career in New Hampshire. In fact, up until 1990, Souter had not left the town that he had lived in most of his life, in a house that allegedly had no TV set. And, I say this as a lover of books, not that there's anything wrong with that. He only spent one year on the U.S. District Court of Appeals for the 1st District, and so there was little case history to judge Souter on. As New Hampshire's Attorney General, he had prosecuted nuclear war protesters, and he had prosecuted Jehovah's Witnesses, who had obscured the live free or die motto on the license plates of their cars. Didn't show any sense of being a civil libertarian. Conservatives didn't see anything wrong with them. Liberals didn't see enough to oppose. Souter was confirmed. What will probably be regarded as Souter's most important contribution to the court, the case that defined him probably as a judge, is not a case in which he took a strong position on the most important issue of uh, modern times at the Supreme Court, the issue of abortion. This was the Planned Parenthood of Southeast Pennsylvania versus Casey case in 1992. So it's right before the 1992 presidential election, 
This case was widely seen as the case where the Supreme Court would overturn Roe v. Wade. There were enough justices appointed on the court by Republican presidents and who had a more conservative view of the Constitution than the court of the 1970s that produced the Roe v. Wade decision. Antoine Scalia, Clarence Thomas, for instance, saw absolutely no right to an abortion in the Constitution. But for David Souter, a different issue was troubling, rather than the core issue of whether an abortion was a constitutionally guaranteed right. How could the court, he thought, make a change in something that has been the law of the land for over 30 years? Millions of American women had made choices according to the rule of the court that the court held in Roe v. Wade. How could they change it now? What damage would it do to individual people? This was what mattered most to David Souter. And in some conversation with Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, he was able to convince her of that position. The resulting decision in Casey was a surprise for most. The court, in effect, upheld Roe v. Wade, not on the merits, but out of a concept of stare decisis, stay the decision. The decision which had an impact on so many people could not be so easily overturned by a new Supreme Court. The conservatives of the court, like Antoine Scalia, were outraged by the decision. In effect, this starry decisis meant that the Supreme Court could never reverse a decision made by a prior Supreme Court. And despite numerous attempts of litigants to bring abortion cases to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has not yet dealt convincingly again with Roe v. Wade. It's not always about straight up or down ideology on the Supreme Court. And so, although the news coverage will be about the fact that Souter was considered one of the liberals of the court, and Obama will certainly replace Souter with someone at least moderate and possibly uh, liberal, that there's very little change. But the history of the Supreme Court shows that that's not true. Uh, Justices such as Oliver Wendell Holmes, Louis Brandeis, Benjamin Cardozo, Hugo Black, have made enormous contributions to the court as single justices. So President Obama has an opportunity here to change history of America by making a great appointment of a fantastic legal mind. What is good news for President Obama that he'll have a Supreme Court confirmation in his first term as president, and he'll have a relatively simple one as the Congress is controlled by his own party, and he's popular with that party at this time. What's good news for President Obama may be bad news for former President Jimmy Carter, because he remains the only president in recent history not to be able to have the opportunity to appoint a justice to the Supreme Court. In his four years, there is none. Gerald Ford appointed one justice, and that is John Paul Stevens, who is still on the Supreme Court. But in Jimmy Carter's time as president, there was no Supreme Court vacancies. So he is the only president, definitely in the 20th century, you have to go back all the way to James Garfield, who obviously didn't even serve a full term, to see a president who didn't get the opportunity to nominate a Supreme Court justice. Souter's decision to resign comes as a bit of a surprise. It's well known that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a Clinton appointee, has some medical issues and is seen as one that's likely to retire. John Paul Stevens is now approaching his 35th year on the Supreme Court. 
and is now 80 years old. All three of these justices are what would consider ideologically liberal. Uh, Stevens was more of a moderate uh, when he was appointed to the court in 75, but with the change of the court, whether he's changed or the court's changed, is not always clear, and uh, he's definitely considered one of the more liberal members now. And so they're likely not to risk a future where there would be a Republican or more conservative president. If they plan to retire, they're likely to do it while uh, this president's in office. So I would say it's likely that President Obama will get two or three appointments in his first term. Okay, great to see everybody on the Facebook site. We have some questions there from listeners that I want to address as best uh, as I can. Uh, These are always questions and attempted answers. Uh, I won't always have the answer for your question, but I might have some comment on it. William Mann from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania writes, uh, I look forward to each and every episode. I completely love history, and your podcast goes a long way with providing me with my history fix. I am currently reading a biography of Joshua Chamberlain and was wondering if you ever considered doing an episode on comparing real history to that of Hollywood kind of like uh, what the History Channel has done from time to time. Well, William, I probably won't do something like that. I just see it as a little bit out of scope of this program to look at movies and how things compare to to what's in the movies. Uh, Joshua Chamberlain, uh, who led the famous uh, bayonet charge at Gettysburg, which probably saved the Union from defeat. He's a very interesting character. And the only uh, thing I would comment on him uh, in related to history and politics is to not only look at his Civil War career, but look at his career afterwards when he became a uh, politician in Maine and had a role in uh, defending uh, President Andrew Johnson from impeachment. Not so much defending his actions, but defending what he saw as the constitutional role of the presidency. So he's an interesting person, both on and off the battlefield. John Stroke of Cleveland, Ohio, wrote in regards to my comments about the recent trend of Tea Parties. While certain Republicans want to leech onto the Tea Party idea as a way to improve their terrible PR at this time, Tea parties are most certainly anti-both parties, not to be confused with bipartisan. Those who want to dismiss the parties as crazy right-wing Republicans angry about taxes are completely missing the point to their detriment. These parties were more about the lack of responsibility in the part of our governments at all levels. This, of course, includes both parties in the past 10 years or so. It includes a general irritation about the size of the federal government and the squashing of states' rights. I don't think it's likely yet But I know more people are talking third party than ever in my life of 32 years. When I explain that third party inevitably will lead to the demise of one or the other two, people don't care. Third party may seem unlikely, as I rightly pointed out uh, in a recent comment about a podcast, but not impossible and will happen someday for sure. Well, John, thanks for your comment. Um, I'm sure the the, uh, people who start these events such as the Tea Party, go into it planning to have a certain uh, message or agenda, 
And then, you know, we get to the media and the media does with it what it will. So uh, I haven't attended any of these parties, so it's hard to see it, you know, situation on the ground. I can say that the overall media message that they got was probably, in the end, co-opted by the Republican Party and those that traditionally support the Republican Party, you know, right-wing uh, radio uh, broadcasters, the, the Fox News uh, station, uh, Rush Limbaugh, um, etc. So, and certainly Republican politicians made an issue about the Tea Parties, and Republicans do like to claim to be less of the taxing party. In terms of your comment about uh, third parties, I, I do agree that the only way a third party will probably start in America, of any significance, of course, is to replace one or the other. And that's, in effect, what happened with the Republican Party. It replaced the Whigs and the sort of national Republicans that had existed prior to it. Okay, Nick Klein in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee writes, I have been hearing a lot about torture since the Office of Legal Counsel memos were released. Several things have been troubling me. First, didn't the U.S. military declare that waterboarding is illegal during the Vietnam War? Next, these memos, which are just legal opinions, have been cited by many people as legal justifications. How does that work? Have legal opinions ever held up in court as a justification for any major event in our history? Also, it seems to me that refusing to prosecute CIA interrogators because they were just acting in good faith following orders is a form of the Nuremberg defense. One of the principles which came out of the Nuremberg trials was that just following orders does not absolve anyone of guilt. How is the current situation different? I feel lost. Uh, well, first of all, there's a lot there, and I think it is a huge event that uh, President Obama has released the memos on uh, the activities conducted by the CIA. I think that the release of the memos is more of a presidential action in and of itself than most people are right now giving him credit for. There are angry uh, voices, of course, now that want prosecution. And so uh, President Obama's step, which is releasing the memos and then saying, I'm not going to prosecute, is seen as a very uh, weak step. I do see it as significant uh, that the that an American president has decided to release you know, transparent information about the activities of the prior administration. One interesting distinction that uh, many people are not reading between the lines into the uh, activities of the Obama administration is that while Obama has indicated that uh, CIA agents wouldn't be prosecuted uh, by his administration, he has not sought any kind of an amnesty bill from Congress or anything that drastic. And there are still ways uh, that they could be uh, that they could be prosecuted, one supposes, not through the Justice Department, perhaps, perhaps through the courts. There's a case now against an airline uh, that apparently, a uh, subsidiary of Boeing, that apparently transported some of uh, these suspects for uh, activities all around the world. We'll see what, ha what happens with enterprises like that. The Nuremberg trial of 1945, held in the city where the Nazi party was said to have started, was intended 
to provide uh, closure to World War II, to allow Germany to move on, and to prosecute those with some kind of a fair process uh, who had uh, committed war crimes in Germany. Uh, so it certainly does set a precedent for looking at any action which might involve violations of international law. One of the challenges of the Nuremberg trials is that most of the defendants were going to pin everything on Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler had taken his own life in a bunker in Berlin as Russian troops came into the city. So the whole process was going to get nowhere if the defense of I was simply following orders was allowed. And that led to the principle that came out of Nuremberg, which is that I was just following orders is not an acceptable defense. Otherwise, it would have been impossible to prosecute any of the other leaders of the Nazi party. So uh, it's a principle that's there. There is a slight distinction here in the case that you're talking about in that I believe uh, you have two groups of people and it would be those who actually conducted these renditions and these procedures um, and the people that gave the orders. And that could go all the way up. So... Uh, you don't have a case where the people who perhaps gave the order are unavailable. They're out there. And I suppose that some future could face prosecution from some uh, American or international authority. That's possible. I think it is unrealistic to expect one American president, however, to, upon taking office, immediately go after another American president. It's just not the way the presidency works. So I think that from President Obama's point of view, the matter is get the information out, tell the world what was done, be honest about it, and then the chips fall where they may. Certainly uh, Republican and conservative voices are very angry about the release of the memos. I think most Americans will find that the decision's correct. There may be a parallel in Obama's actions to the Truth Commissions of South Africa, which essentially, it's oversimplification, involved amnesty if the people who committed crimes told the Truth Commission about what happened. And so revenge was not had in many cases, but just full knowledge of the activities that occurred was, so no one could deny them later. American presidents have taken great liberty with powers at times. Andrew Jackson just simply defied a Supreme Court decision about the forced Indian uh, removal. Uh, that he planned. Lincoln suspended habeas corpus for American citizens with no court uh, approval. Later, after his death, the Supreme Court would rule against him in one of those cases. What the Bush administration has done, in my view, in, in that knowing that uh, there's a reasonable time period where you can get away with simply defying courts, using legal opinions to shield the actions or saying, in effect, my lawyer said it was okay. One example of this, to me, is the unitary executive theory. It's a theory that was cited uh, by a dissent in one Supreme Court case, the dissent from Justice Scalia. To use a dissent as the basis for justifying executive actions is, I think, irresponsible. You know, legal opinions are just that, legal opinions. A lawyer can argue whatever they want until it gets before a judge. 
Decline further rights. Uh, Woodrow Wilson used Congress to pass the Espionage Act in 1917, which was used to justify imprisoning World War I protesters and shutting down newspapers critical of the war. These events were arguably just as horrifying as the torture situation is today, but I would like to make a distinction. Adams and Wilson used congressionally approved bills. Roosevelt used an executive order. Lincoln used Article I, Section 9 of the Constitution. They were at least based on some legal ground. The authorization of torture was based on what a couple of guys thought. That is insane, uh, so writes Nick. And Jerry Stanford of Savannah, Georgia, uh, also said, I was going to ask the same question. Given that it falls between the presidencies of Washington and Jefferson, Adams gets completely glossed over, and I get the impression that the Alien and Sedition Acts was part of what brought down the Federalists as a party. So writes uh, Jerry Stanford. I think there is a case to be made that where two branches support an action in American government, it's easier to say that it passes muster. So a president that acts according to the will of Congress is on much firmer ground. It's very difficult to imagine that sometime later there's going to be some great you know, prosecution or scandal as a result of it. Uh, could still be a wrong action, could come after court review later, historians could still condemn it, but two branches seem to cover a president. Lincoln, it could be said, had the approval of Congress. As soon as Congress met, it passed bills approving Lincoln's actions that he had taken during the stretch when he was president and Congress wasn't in session and states were seceding from the Union. Not all congressmen were happy, but a majority supported his actions. Now, during the period of 2001 to 2005, it could be said that Bush had enjoyed the most congressional support of any president since Lyndon Johnson or perhaps even FDR. He did not, however, seek approval of that Congress directly. But it's difficult to look at the Congress of 2001 to 2005 and see any crack in the loyalty to Bush administration that would have occurred. Since that time has been another, was another story. But still, Bush was not up and up to the entire Republican-dominated Congress perhaps, to allow them the opportunity of what probably would have been a rubber stamp for his actions um, after 2001. John Adams was brought down by the fighting in his own party more than anything else. Absent that, he had a small shot at re-election. It was likely that Jefferson was going to be president in any case. With the infighting in the Federalist Party and united partisans for the most part on the Republican side, he became the first incumbent president to be defeated, and it would be 28 years later before another would be, his son. So the Alien and Sedition Acts that were pursued during his administration, and as you correctly cite, were passed by Congress, therefore had the approval of the president and Congress. In fact, probably more uh, support in Congress, uh, John Adams used them reluctantly. They were unpopular, and they helped to boost Republican efforts and organization. There is a lesson learned in the Alien Sedition Act. You never want to get the other side's partisans too angry. You can't please them, but you don't want to make them too angry either. But again, Adams and Lincoln's actions, you know, you can see the two-branch support for them. While Bush, uh, perhaps by relying on memos, uh, shakier legal ground. Jack Ryan writes, Bruce, in your discussion about uh, pubs in American politics, you neglected to mention the Tun Tavern in Philadelphia, the birthplace of the Marines. 
and so I'd like to do that. The Tun Tavern no longer exists. It was in Philadelphia. Unfortunately, where it was is now a highway, I-95. There are numerous replica Tun Taverns. There's one in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and the uh, National Museum of the Marine Corps in Quantico, Virginia, has a Tun Tavern-themed restaurant. The Tun Tavern existed before the City Tavern that we discussed uh, in Philadelphia. It was built early on in 1685 and was named for the Old English word tun, uh, a container of beer, kind of like a keg. A restaurant was added to the tavern in, seven, in the 1740s. In 1756, Benjamin Franklin would use this tavern, this is before the city tavern was built, as a recruitment gathering point for the Pennsylvania militia as it prepared to quell uprisings among Native Americans. During the Revolutionary War, the Continental Congress called for the enactment of a Marine Corps called the Continental Marines. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. They were formed in November 10th, 1775. They were to be used as onboard security forces for the uh, ships, protecting captains. Uh, their sharpshooters would station in the tops of the fighting ship mast and look out for enemy officers, naval gunners. There were probably about 2,000 Continental Marines. The impetus for starting Continental Marines was a planned invasion of Nova Scotia, which was a hotbed of uh, loyalists loyalist sympathy north of the colonies that uh, Americans had their eye on. Marines were tasked to join Washington's army at Trenton to slow the progress of British troops southward through New Jersey. They did not reach the battle in time to help, but they were invaluable in the American victory at Princeton. The uniform of the Continental Marines were green coats with white facings, lapel cuffs, and coat lining, with a leather high collar to protect against cutlass slashes. That is where the term leatherneck was earned. 
It is likely the green cloth, cloth was used because it was plentiful in Philadelphia and also served to distinguish Marines from Redcoat British or Blue Continentals. The Tun Tavern in Philadelphia was the basis of recruitment for this first Continental Marine Corps. There was a little bit of a gap between the Continental Marines and the U.S. Marine Corps we know today. The Continental Marines were ended in 1783, U.S. Marine Corps 1798. I think the Tun Tavern being the recruitment site for these, for the Pennsylvania militia and then for this Marine group is just indicative of how important taverns were to American life. These really were the business centers. There was no Hilton, you know. So if you wanted to start any enterprise, be it a business enterprise or an army, tavern was the place to go. Dan Michener writes, while former President Bush has indicated that he owes the new president his silence, Vice President Cheney has been very active attacking the new administration. Has this occurred in the past in history? Well, Dan, in terms of a uh, president, first of all, there's a certain amount of deference that presidents show to each other. Uh, this is why I indicated it is so unlikely that a new president coming in is going to turn around and prosecute the old president unless an outside force compels him to do so or overwhelming public opinion compels him to do so. And it, it, there's a little bit of vice versa. I mean, ex-presidents are a small club of people who have been president and they certainly consult. There will be phone calls between former President Bush and President uh, Obama. Uh, just as there will undoubtedly be calls between Bill Clinton and President Obama, former President H.W. Bush, and former President Carter. There certainly is a little bit of a kinship there, so I'm not surprised with Bush's comments. I also think that politically, uh, Bush, given his extremely low approval ratings at the end of his presidency, the fact that his own party uh, blames him uh, much for their big defeat in 2008, I do think that um, there wouldn't much to be gained by him speaking out, so he's going to do the best thing he can and remain silent. Uh, if he's anything like Herbert Hoover in 1933, that's what Hoover did for the first year. While FDR, a man completely opposed to him ideologically, came into office, Hoover remained in California, remained silent. It was, however, in 1934, as the midterm, the first midterm started, that Hoover decided to speak out and came close to calling FDR a, a dictator and a fascist without using those terms directly, completely opposing the New Deal as enslaving uh, working people in the U.S. Hoover spoke out of necessity. The Republican Party had been so destroyed there was no one of stature to speak who was left. And Hoover would have a role in 1936, an attempt to get his party's nomination again in 1940. He would not get it. In terms of former vice presidents uh, speaking out against a uh, new returning president, uh, Dan Quayle comes to mind. He was certainly an opponent of the Clinton administration in its first term as he sought to get his party's nomination in 1996. He was not successful. And the same thing occurred with Walter Mondale, who was relatively quiet, and Tip O'Neill uh, picked up much of the slack of Democratic opposition to President Reagan in 81-82. Uh, when Reagan invaded uh, Grenada, Walter Mondale questioned, said that there was con considerable dispute whether any Americans in Grenada were actually 
in danger? And if American citizens are not in danger, how can we justify the invasion under international law? This was 1983, and Walter Mondale was going to be the nominee, likely, for the Democrats the next year. So he was critical, but uh, waited a little bit beforehand. So in Cheney's comments, you have uh, you know a very partisan approach. And obviously, this is a huge ideological change and a very personal one. I mean, not just a policy difference, but something that might actually impact uh, Cheney as a person. We'll see. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. You can find us on Facebook. There's a link to it on the website. On the Facebook site, we have the podcast on Brown versus the Board of Education available. It's an archived podcast. I also wanted to celebrate a milestone in that My History Can Beat Up Your Politics has now a five-star rating on the iTunes music store. So that's pretty good. I don't know how long it'll last. We'll see. That means of the 65 or so people that have come on and either done a review or just rated the program, five stars was the average, which is very high. I, I would appreciate one of the best ways to help out the show, if you want, is to rate the show on iTunes, uh, because that's going to get other people who are interested in history looking at it seriously. We have a one little handicap with this program, and that's in marketing it, and that's the name, of course, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. You know, it sounds maybe silly to some people at the beginning. I'm not changing the name. I think the name sums up what it is the best, and um, but on the other hand, a couple of good ratings and reviews will help people who are real serious history buffs Get over that uh, hump if need be. Now, you don't have to give us five stars. You give us what you think. Uh, the ratings are the most important thing. And a review helps, too. I'm under no illusion that the podcast is completely perfect and that the five stars represents more of appreciation for the show than a real grading that it's five stars. We could certainly improve on the audio. I have a very basic audio setup. I have a good microphone. The rest of the equipment is very basic. I'm just recording into a computer. There's been times when we suffered in terms of editing. I'm putting out as many podcasts as I can, and I'm, I'm, I'm definitely making a decision to increase frequency, even if the quality went down a hair because of that. Uh, so be it. Just try to get more podcasts out there because there's so many political developments that there have occurred between 2008 and 2009. So um, we know there's improvements you can make. Uh, not perfect by any means really helps just to go and rate the show whatever you think. Uh, the number of ratings is a very important metric for iTunes. Thanks a lot for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.